I told some of the, like, some of my supervisors, some of, like, the more established people at the org, and at least, like, two of, out of three of them were like, oh, well, that sounds like a good offer to me. Like, you might not want to try and negotiate any higher. They might think that you were, you know, you're, like, selfish or something. And I was like, dude, like, this is... and." Like, this is the thing, like, this is what keeps people down. You know, I was able to get, like, a lot more. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. And Weird Weird intro. Well, you know what? I listen to myself record. I've been batch, like, editing this week, and I feel like I listen to myself say that exactly the same way every single time. So, you know, I figure I'd mix it up a little bit. Good. Um, (laughs) so today we're well i'm also very excited because today we're talking to my friend danielle and we're going to be talking about personal finance she just started a personal finance instagram account and like i am just floored i mean maybe partially because it's like i don't understand instagram and so whenever i see it's like you know the first person to like you know i time traveled from like the 1800s and i see a like a cell phone for the first time and i'm like this is like magic you know, um, but yeah, she got over like whatever, like you got like a thousand plus followers in like a week or two. And like you only have like what, like 20 plus posts or something, think, less than 20 posts. It was like a month. So. <laughs> OK, a month, but still, still, still good conversion, good conversion. It's still pretty. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, um, I'm going to let you just introduce yourself to the audience mm-hmm. anything you think our audience should know about hello you. hello audience my name is danielle okay. <laughs> um so <laughs> some background on the unbrokeable which is the account that isabel is talking about um so let's go backwards i am from a low-income background i'm first gen um neither of my parents went to college so um you know money was a stress for my family most of my life and like honestly continues to be for my family um And then everyone I went to college, you know, I was exposed to just like the massive amount of wealth that exists in this world. Um, And my mind was like super blown. Um, I graduated, but I realized like, I still had no idea what I was doing. Like I graduated debt free, luckily, but I had no idea how to manage the money that I didn't have or the money that I was about to earn. Um, And then there's always just like this background pressure of, you know, I'm finally the one to like, have an opportunity to um, have like a regular paying job, you know, and a regular career. Um, and like, what does that mean for my family? And it, I really thought about, um, so I felt like I had achieved a certain level of, of success, but I also wanted to, you know, bring my family and my friends along with that journey. Um, because it's hard. Like I, I truly didn't know anyone to talk to. And it was actually people within the first gen community that, um, kind of inspired me to even like prioritize personal finance. Um, and so, you know, I just had like a lot going on over the past few years, like learning how to do this stuff and decided that, you know, it's time to like share this with like a greater community. Um, and what better way to do that than Instagram, because I'm already on there all the time. Um, so it was kind of like something that I've thought about for a while, but, you know, finally took the plunge, um, late in like 2020 to start posting and sharing information and my story, um, and just hoping somebody will listen and, um, even just one person would, would feel inspired to, you know, make a change in their own financial lives. So now you're an influencer. 
Oh, I'm not there yet. Okay, well, you are an influencer <laughs> to me because you've I've actually already bought something because I saw that you had bought it. Do you, can you guess what it is? Depends what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the true hallmark if you can get people to actually uh-huh. buy shit. That you yeah, recommend. I don't want you to. I don't want you to just randomly buy shit. But if it's uh, for your best interest, for sure. What was it? Can you it? guess? Was it a book? No. A personal finance. I'm gonna show it to you on camera, but obviously, people listening are not gonna be able to see it. I bought <gasps> this habit yes. tracker that you showed <laughs> in your Instagram story. <laughs> That's so, so funny. So I don't understand. What does it do for you? Like, what do you? What's the Benny? Of the habit tracker. The Benny. Yeah. Well, I, as you see, I can track all of my habits, mm-hmm. which I, I do actually feel like quantifying things is pretty helpful for me as a motivator, as opposed mm-hmm. to just being like, oh, like all these things that I wanted to do every day, you know, like wake up at 730 or something, right? I, if it, as I think I maybe mentioned on previous episodes of this podcast, I am not hard on myself at all. Whenever I just don't do the thing, I'm like, oh, well. (laughs) Guess I didn't make it this day, but now I can actually see when I didn't do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's the Benny. Got it. Okay. And if you're a visual person, you know, you could actually look at it and fill something in. Um, And I used to like bullet journal a lot. So that's kind of like where that that kind of obsession came from right plus it's aesthetic so if you're aesthetic if you like aesthetic things Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah the i noticed that the journal does really fit into the to the aesthetic of your page specifically Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) what can i say well daniel's a designer so Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so um so you mentioned that you were from a low-income background same um Mm And I'm assuming that, you know, you got, like, a decent job at some point and, like, started making some cash, which also mm-hmm. same. And I found that transition to be, like, really weird. As someone that identified, I think, like, too large of a part of my identity used to be, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a low-income person. Like, I've had to struggle for a long time and whatever. And mm-hmm. as I've started making more money, I feel like I've had to kind of, like, redefine that part of myself and, like yeah learn what it means to be like like middle to upper middle class and like the obligations that come with that do you feel any of that mm-hmm. oh I feel that 100 percent. yeah so I didn't even come into like a high paying job until like a year and a half ago Same. Prior to that, <laughs> yeah prior to that I was like out here making like 40k and being like I'm living my best life in in Washington DC where like you know that's actually not 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 that much yeah. But even then, comparing it to, like, my parents, I'm, like, I'm already making more than my parents ever did in their whole careers, you know? Um, and it's just been weird. Like, I also am trying to reconcile that identity issue because I still act. And in my head, like, in my spending habits, I'm still, like, acting like I have no money and, like, always hesitant to buy things and, like, have a lot of, like, shopping anxiety, you know? Because mm-hmm. I'm, like, got to hold on to my money because I might not have it, Yeah, you know? I so- Um, I swing from there to, like, yo, I got cash, now. I want to buy everything. And, like, I, like, I swing back and forth, and I don't do a good job of moderating either one of the sides of those two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you got to treat yourself, too, you know? I I have spent more than I have in the past, but simply because, like, I have more money to do it. But I think part of it, too, is, like, I came across, like, minimalism as well, like, at the same time. 
And so I think that kind of also has like helped me to not spend too much and like be really thoughtful about my purchases. Yeah, for me, my parents are two exact opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, not exactly opposite, but my mom, super frugal, was an immigrant from mm-hmm. China, had like whatever $60 in her pocket when she came here, right? And then like my dad is like, you know, waspy. I'm like sixth generation to go to Andover, like whatever, whatever, right? Like, <laughs> you know, just incredible amounts of privilege. Like we came over on like the Mayflower or whatever, right? He is really just not exactly like a spend thrift, but he will be like, oh, we have to buy this because it's on sale, right? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it'll, and, uh, and then and then the part of me that's like my mom will be like, oh my God, no, we're like we should just not buy anything at all. Like, you know, then we're just, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you're not really saving money because you wouldn't have bought it otherwise. But it's like this, these two warring kind of like parts of me. And I think that came to a head most when I was going to college and I really wanted to get this like huge beanbag for my room because I had this like just this this vision of like who I was going to be in college. I was going to be the person where everyone comes to my room and like hangs out. And so there was like this new beanbag store that opened at the mall and I was like lusting after. I was really like obsessed with it for the longest time before going to college. And eventually I like had this mental break where I just like, I was like picking my mom up from the train and I was like, mom, I have to go. I have to go get this bean. It's like, you know, it's like a seven foot long bean bag. And so like we drove to the mall. It was like just it was a, this like a thunderstormy night and there was like lightning crashing down like, you know, all <laughs> around us. And it was like really dramatic. And I got I went there. I was like crying, tears streaming down my eyes. I was like, <laughs> I finally got there. We got this beanbag. It was like heaven. Like <laughs> and we were like me and my with the mall was about to close. So me and my mom were like booking it, trying to get back to the car and it barely fit in the car. We really thought it wasn't going to fit in the car. And like, you know, I finally got it home and then like we looked on uh the like floor plans of the rooms that we were like once we got our housing assignments and it doesn't it didn't even like fit in my room because I was so small. <laughs> so I didn't even ever taking it to college. And how much was it? It was probably the most expensive thing I'd bought up to that point. It was like two hundred or three hundred dollars. That's the most <laughs> That's hefty for a college student. That's the yeah. most harrowing <laughs> story I've ever heard about a beanbag in my life. <laughs> I was so I was literally like I was really starting to integrate it into my because I do think that if you are kind of inherit this mentality of scarcity of like oh my god like every single thing I buy has to be so 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 precious then you kind of like integrate it as part of your identity of like every single thing you buy has to be like I mean I feel like that's a really big minimalism concept too right mm-hmm. 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 but it has to be really important but I feel like that also leads to you like putting out like becoming really attached to like even the like the smallest things that you purchase you know which That's true. to me feels not minimalism i don't know i i i don't know a lot about minimalism but i feel like in my head it's like you have the things that you need and you don't put like a lot of stock in like objects because they're objects but well, I, I think know. that's what you want is like the 80 20 principle of like you know there's like mm-hmm. the whole notion of you use there's things that you use 80% of the time and there's things that you only use like, you know, maybe 20% of the time. Like you use your computer like every day, right? And most of the things yeah. that you use a lot are the are like, the, you know, those in that 80%. And so you want to have the things that you buy be those like things that are more in the, okay, I'm going to use this 80% of the time as opposed to just like, you know, randomly use it once every so often, right? 
Yeah. I don't know. Do you agree with that, Danielle? Yeah. Anything that I know that I'm going to use for a long term, like I research pretty heavily, but if it's just like, yo, I need to get some pens, like, okay, I'll get whatever the heck I want from the store. Um, but yeah, like my laptop, I, I had a new lap. I got a new laptop this year or, or last year, you know, the first after like six years from college and like high school. And that was uh, a very deep research process because, <laughs> you know, like Macs are like $2,000 nowadays. Right. Um, so yeah, it's not about like, it's okay to get attached to things. Um, that's kind of where the whole, does it bring you joy <laughs> question? That's yeah, just yeah. like the, if you're to, if you're to, um, what's it called? Marie Kondo it? Uh, yeah, Marie Kondo yes. it. Yeah. So if it brings you joy, like keep it in your life. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um. So is personal finance like does your job have anything to do with that or is it just like on the side you were like you just got really interested in learning more about this stuff yeah my my job is in the financial sector but it has nothing to do with like your day-to-day how do you manage your money how do you build wealth um on like an individual level but it's just something that i was really interested in learning about when i graduated it was kind of my mentality at that time was just i was kind of mad because you know we 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 are never taught these things and I was just like frustrated to know that like my parents didn't really get to learn these things either and like I do believe that you had to take agency in like your own education like personal finance like they're not they're not teaching you like everything in school and you can't like use that as a reason not to like learn new things but like at the same time I think about like my parents they didn't really have like examples or um, people to really reach out to And that's like the difference, like, at least for me, I know I have like examples in my life now of like people who have made it or, um, you know, a whole ass network from Brown um, of people that I can like connect to or um, I even just like know how to use the Internet. My dad doesn't know how to how to use the (laughs) computer. So like he can't look (laughs) up what how to like, um, like open a a credit card and like use points and things like that. so yeah, it's just kind of like became, it was originally out of like spite and then it turned into like an empowerment thing where I felt like the more that I know, you know, the better off that I'll be and like the better off like my family will be. I feel like that's such a trend among people in our generation because we have mm-hmm. the internet and we have so much more access to education so that we can learn about things like realizing mm-hmm. there's just so many things that our parents did not learn and therefore could not yeah. teach us. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that like financial literacy is a big one. And the other big one that I feel like comes up all the time is just emotional, like (laughs) emotional, anything, (laughs) regulation, anything. Yeah. Emotional health, mental health, any of that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And that and I find that that is pretty intrinsically tied to like the class status of the family. I know that's like that's not an across the board thing, but I feel like a lot of the low income kids that I know were like, oh, yeah, you know, my parents never really talked to me about, like, mental health because they were trying to figure out how we were going to eat. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I think that's, like, super fair. Um, But we are generally, or at least those of us that have, like, you know, been able to, you know, uh, climb social economic status in some way, now get so like now do you get to kind of reap these benefits and i think it's a good idea to you know try to extend them to our parents that never had them or whatever do you like find yourself educating your parents about this stuff uh more and more so recently 
Um, like when I first graduated, no, because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but even like the last time I went home for like Christmas this past year, I like, we had our first like family, like financial conversation. Um, How did it go? I was like, hey, mom. Oh God, it was so stressful. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I imagine that would be stressful. It was stressful and I learned a lot about my parents that I like, I didn't know before. Um, and kind of just like the complexities of our like financial lives that like, when you're young, you know, I, it was always stressful. And like, I'd hear my parents like fighting about money, but it's just like, you don't really know the details. And like, I found out the details like this time. Right. Um, but like we all, it, it was actually like super helpful. And like, I feel like we, um, like I told my mom to like open a retirement account and she actually like started um, That's amazing. at like the right age of like, I don't even know how old my mom is. She's like 55. Yeah. yeah so it's like, of course, it's not going to be like the end all be all for her. But it's just like just having her even know what like investing is and like be open to it and not scared of it um, was like a huge deal. But yeah, it's 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 a journey. And like, even when I like first got my like high paying job, I remember I was like super hesitant to talk to them about like my salary, because I felt like weird pressure on like, what will they think of me? Will they expect things from me? Like, how does this change like our dynamic as a family now that like I like make more money? Um, and like it's been fine like now that I like we've talked about it and like there hasn't been like too bad a repercussion, but like it definitely was like a fear of mine like when I and it still is like it's it's still hard to like talk to like the rest of the family aside from like my parents, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Have you guys talked to your families about like your salaries? Well, it's funny we had an episode like this with um another podcaster friend of ours nicole who had a very similar uh like situation um and mm -hmm. i really wonder to myself how many people even know how much you know their parents make right because yeah. that's baseline we just don't talk about money as a culture but like mm -hmm. i think uh and i wonder well what do you guys think do you think it's more likely that you wouldn't know your parents salary if you if they made a lot of money or if they made less money because they don't like they're more embarrassed about it because i feel like also when you make a lot of money your parents don't talk to you about that stuff either yeah i don't know i know how much my mom makes and i guess that means that i must have asked her about it at some point but i yeah. don't but i don't remember asking her about it mm -hmm. um but i think that like as a kid i was just like curious and maybe just like asked her or some shit like that um yeah. But I do know that I make more than her, so I don't know. I I don't feel I don't feel like knowledgeable enough to make a an an assertion any either way. You know, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's just like generally money is taboo and like and like even if you make a lot of it, if you don't make a lot of it, like either way, it feels like you need to keep that secret, which is I think ultimately harmful. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I found out about my mom's at least some point like her salary because I've had to like fill out like forms for her that require that information. Um, and my dad, so just like, they'd never told me themselves. I kind of just had to like use, find out for like practical purposes and also just like my own curiosity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's the kind of thing that like now, at least amongst our generation, I feel like we talk about it. Like, I feel like I know a lot of my friends' incomes because, like, we talk about, like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm getting a new job. I'm going to try and negotiate. Like, what do you think I should start at? Like, what do you, you know what I mean? Like, we're mm -hmm. a little more savvy about it now, I think. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, generally people are getting, like, more cool with it. I and, think and are recognizing it as a mechanism of trying to actively, especially in, like, the others. left social justice space. Like, yeah, I mean, 
so much of why women get paid less is because people never talked about what their salary was. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah, that's how I, I was able to like get a raise because I talked to coworkers mm-hmm. um, and I found out that I was getting paid the least <laughs> <laughs> when I came on and I was like, wait, I'm doing the exact same thing that these people are. And then like when like review season came around, I like acknowledged that and I like asked for a raise and, but had I not like talked to my coworkers about it, you know, I wouldn't have known. Yeah. Right? I think, I think a big, yeah, a big turning point for me on that was like the really harsh and stark realization that no matter how like excited a job seems to hire you, like they're always going to try and shortchange you no matter what, like they're always going to try and make sh- like get you to take an offer that's lower than like the lowest possible offer that you could ever accept. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, like talking to other people, even like reaching out to people that work there in advance to figure out what they make to me if you know if you like if you if you have an in and know that information off the top like yeah it can just be so empowering because like with what you were saying danielle like it's kind of hard for an employer to justify like not paying someone as much as someone else if they're doing the exact same job mm-hmm. and it's like kind of the ultimate bargaining power in that. yeah i have a friend who like recently started working for the government and like all of their you know pay whatever bands are public right so like i'm just like what everything every company should be like that <laughs> right but even then the pay bands can be so wide the oh really the i've never looked at myself be, the government pay bands can be, can be hilariously wide how wide yeah like, within like what like twenty thousand like, range or so, what it'll be like 70 to like 130 or something like that what? <laughs> oh that's that's really higher than i was expecting but still it's it's better to at least have an idea a ballpark right yeah mm-hmm. transparency is good and like we should always just like push for more of that i guess yeah for mm-hmm. sure for sure yeah <laughs> absolutely when not I was... even i guess like <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> when i was negotiating for this job that i have now people like my supervisors at the job that i was leaving who were like very supportive of me like trying to find a new job um were literally like you know, I got an offer and it was like for 1K more than I was making. I was making 50 at the time. And then like I got an offer for, for 51 and I felt like hilariously insulted because and like the benefits were worse, you know. So like all in all, uh-huh. I probably would have been making less money. And I told some of the like some of my supervisors, some of like the more established people at the org. And at least like two of, out of three of them were like oh, that sounds like a good offer to me. Like, you might not want to try and negotiate any higher. They might think that you were, you know, you're, like, selfish or something. And I was like, dude, like, this is, and, like, this is the thing, like, this is what keeps people down. You know, I was able to get, like, a lot more (laughs) than just the 1K. And, but, you know, it's, like, people, like, really kind of buy into the culture, right? They're, like, now now there are people saying to other people like oh maybe you shouldn't try and push it like maybe you shouldn't try and negotiate and that's like not good at all you definitely should try and negotiate every single time no matter what it's like why would anybody ever say that like what is like <laughs> what is little like the, what's actually like yeah, what, what what's the worst him? case scenario <laughs> right like if you try to negotiate mm-hmm. they just don't give you what you want mm-hmm. right no one's gonna take a job offer off the table because you asked for more money yeah i just i've never no, heard of that happening they actually want you they'll they'll make it work right exactly um and it's an expectation for you to negotiate yeah like a lot of us forget that totally yeah they're ready for it and like they like they're gonna be like oh, okay like well you know they have a whole process for it 
And when you, mm-hmm. if you like take a job without negotiating, they're like, oh, even like you know, they 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 breathe a sigh of relief because they because <laughs> they were expecting it. Um, this is my crackpot theory for what I'm gonna do with my student loan debt, and I want to bounce it off of both of you to see if you think that's gonna work. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to. So obviously everyone's debt is in forbearance right now, but when my when it comes out of forbearance, I'm gonna pay the minimum until some democratic president absolves my debt. <laughs> um, what do you guys think? Well, aren't they trying to pressure Biden to go up to 50k? He's already promised 10k will be forgiven, and they're trying to get him up to 50, right? Yeah. That sounds very plausible to me. Like that could work. Exactly. <laughs> that's what that's my point yeah i assume your your debt is kind of in that range then where it could pot- potentially just like disappear. oh yeah i have i have 30k um of undergraduate debt and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> i although it seems like biden like might actually do it i've been riding this strat for a while like three years <laughs> yeah. and um so yeah i i think it's plausible i think it's actually pretty plausible I think it's plausible, but I just, like, am hesitant. <laughs> I'm hesitant to rely on the government for, like, anything, so, like... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good strategy. Just, just take it into your own hands, um, if you can do but it. Then but then you'll be regret, you'll be regretting that you pay that much when he actually, if it ever actually does happen, yeah. right? <laughs> You're like, oh, that's more money I could have spent on whatever yeah for my savings planners or yeah <laughs> <laughs> planners <laughs> or maybe just think how much additional like that you'll have an in interest from waiting for uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> the president to clear your your yeah, debt it's i think it's a high risk high reward strategy <laughs> mm-hmm well, and the reason you, you seem resolved to do it, <laughs> <laughs> we can't convince you well, of anything. <laughs> you know, I'll see. I'll see how the next, like, I'll see how the Biden presidency goes, and then, you know, maybe I'll become more aggressive after that. Well, that's also something he can do via executive order, right? He doesn't even need Congress to do that. I mean, the reason why that it, it's a little weird to me, though, is that. The reason why I, I'm a little just confused as to why progressives champion that particular thing as like one of their biggest talking points as opposed to things that are going to help like, you know, homeless people or people who like legitimately have no money. Because even if you, I mean, if you have a college degree, I still think you have the potential to like, you know, have the earnings to to pay it back more so than the people who I think are in more dire straits because of this pandemic, like, you know, things like unemployment. Like I would focus on that way before focusing on forgiving people student loans. Yeah, I agree. You know, so like, why is this a progressive talking point? That's the part I don't get. I think it's because it's an easy way to score points, to be honest. I mean, like, I think it's like popular. I think a lot of people don't want to have student debt, like Republicans and Democrats Mm -hmm. alike. Mm -hmm. And... I think that it's substantially less controversial than helping poor people. Like, people, you know, it's a unfortunately. Con- unfortunately, like, well, it's like- I mean, actually, is it though? Because I think that it's it like from if you're as a Republican, if you're Republican being like you opted into buying something that you knew you couldn't afford and you went into debt to pay for it, just like a car, should we be paying off everyone's cars? Like, that seems like a super reasonable argument more so than let's fuck poor people. Well, I think that, like, 
I think there's a requisiteness about school that pe- everyone recognizes, you know, like, mm-hmm. sure, you can, like, go to a trade school and, like, end up making decent money, but, the, I mean, I think a lot of people are, like, sold wholesale the idea that you have to go to college, <clears throat> and I think a lot of people feel like they're coming out on the short end of the stick in terms of, like, how the debt's, you know, treating them, right? Right, right. Whereas, like, I, and... And, like, those people also, I think, have some, like, political power, whereas, you know, poor people and homeless people don't have a lot of political capital, as we've talked about on this. True, true. I mean, unfortunately, it goes back to whoever is probably going to, even if you're, if you, if you have a bunch of, like, college debt, you probably still are going to have the more influence over politics than a homeless person will ever have. So, unfortunately, it just goes back to those kind of perverse incentives of politics. Yeah. I mean, and we're talking about literally, like, one policy involves you literally being handed money which is you know having your debt resolved and one policy will likely involve you getting taxed heavier so literally losing money um you know so people like the one that where they get the money more yeah danielle i want to know if there's any things like when you said that you were like you know upset or like you know mad that you're like why is no one telling me this like what specific things like kind of like prompted that that feeling because like right now i'm trying to like understand stuff like life insurance and like like i have a friend who's trying to find a financial planner which is apparently notoriously difficult in dc which Mm -hmm. i'm kind of surprised i was very surprised by i would have not expected that um in a place like dc but like yeah what are the things that you felt like people should have been telling you uh how to invest for one yeah (laughs) i mean it 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 all it, it, there's so much to it. It's just like one, how to like manage your money. Like as a, as a young person, like when I was making money, I was like, okay, I'm going to just go have fun. And like, I don't know how to save it. I don't know what an emergency fund is. Yeah. I don't know why that's important. Um, so it's just like the foundational things of like earning money, how to manage your money and how to like grow your money. Um, and I think investing in particular is something that is like the most scary and just completely and, like, confusing like, yeah, thing. Totally. Yeah. Especially from like people of, of like, my background um yeah. like neither of my parents have ever invested in their lives you know it's just like it's not something that was like on the table for them or like didn't know how uh, did understand it you know it's like it, i mean it's scary because you just you think of the stock market and you're like you just think you're gonna like there's gonna be a crash you're gonna like lose your money like what's the point of it um you feel like i think a, a common thing is just like saving my family was like big on saving they're like save all your money but it's like they don't realize that like inflation is eating at your money you know mm-hmm. Um, you could have like all this money saved in like 50 years, but like it really just like doesn't amount to anything. Um, so even just like that reality was like kind of like missing. Um, but yeah, I think like investing is a big one. What do you, okay. I don't think we've talked about this on this podcast before. What do you make of this whole GameStop thing? Because I feel like <laughs> literally the GameStop thing is just proof that the stock market is just fake and you can just mm-hmm. do whatever you want. And as long as you, okay. So for context, for the listeners who haven't heard of this, like GameStop stock went way up because people in this Reddit thread, actually, DeAndre, you should probably explain it because I think you understand it better than I do what was going on. Sure. So there's a Reddit thread called Wall Street Bets. And, you know, they're just a bunch of like kind of stock savvy Redditors that just talk about stocks all day. Um, Like which ones to invest in, which ones not to invest in. And one of them realized that um, this hedge fund, I think it was Melvin, but I can't remember which one, 
took a huge amount of shorts on GameStop. And shorts are essentially like you're betting that the stock price will go down. And if the stock price does go down, then you make money on it through a series of like borrowing and buying from intermediary parties. And um, I, you know, I think that they and I agree with this in principle that like even the concept of shorting something is kind of fucked up. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's like you're literally betting on this well, company to fail. But um, what? But is it more fucked up than like? just regular investing because you're every other investing is just you're betting on this company to like do better yeah i mean i think that maybe maybe there's like one extra mental leap of like i'm hoping this country or this company tanks because i will make money off of it or whatever mm-hmm. um but um i think that you know that might be slightly morally dubious but the more morally dubious thing was that this hedge fund took shorts that equal to 140% of the available stock of GameStop. Um, oh, I didn't realize that part of it. So they heavily leveraged, like, um, GameStop to fail, right? And mm-hmm. and these Redditors were like, ah, oh, that's actually super fucked. Like, why are they allowed to do that? Like, why, does, why is regulation allowed to take shorts more than 100% of what the company's worth? And so they were like... You know, let's get together and just buy a shit ton of GameStop stock. <laughs> GameStock. GameStock. Stonks. <laughs> and um, and they bought a shit ton of GameStonks and like pushed the um, pushed the the price up to almost five hundred at one point, and it was like at twenty dollars for reference. And that um, that hedge fund actually ended up losing like I think thirteen billion dollars, a lot of money. And mm-hmm. had to get bailed mm-hmm. out by some other hedge fund buddies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, so that's the situation. Then I will let Danielle talk now. <laughs> I thought it was a super, I, I wasn't aware what was happening until maybe like two or three days afterwards. And then I was actually like, I had to look into like what shorting is. Um, so that was like a great explanation. Um, that end of day, it's just like, it was just showing that as a like, consumer like just like a normal person you actually and you have collective power um that like you you don't really have against like these huge hedge hedge funds that are able to um you know bet millions and billions of dollars that like a company is going to fail right um so it's kind of it was just like it it was very entertaining (laughs) yeah (laughs) honestly um and like uh, another nuance that is like people were were trying to not share uh sell their shares um, because that meant like kind of like, you know, letting the hedge funds win. Um, so everybody was like, hold, hold, hold. Um, and like the price kept on getting higher and higher. You know, it's just kind of like seeing how far this ridiculousness can go. Um, yeah. And I think, I think they're going to write about this uh, in the future. Oh, you know, 100%. As like a pivotal moment in like our economy. Yeah. So as we <laughs> speak right now, GameStop is sitting at $50. Um, and. Yeah, like they were like, <laughs> I went onto Wall Street Bets the day after it, was, it all went down just to see what was going on, and they were like, they they say that you need to have diamond hands and not paper hands. <laughs> and Wait, what? Diamond what hands. Mean? Diamond hands mean like you hold, you don't like you don't sell your stock, even like don't panic sell just because it's dropping. They will like, you know the the idea was that like I mean we saw a pretty massive market manipulation depending 
like kind of no matter how you slice it, right? Like Robin Hood mm-hmm. stops stopped allowing people to buy GameStop stocks and only allowed selling, which is like pretty in my opinion, pretty egregious market manipulation. And like I think Ameritrade pulled pulled GME. It was just like, you know, a a really what felt like a considered effort from um Wall Street to stop this from happening. But Mm-hmm. nothing illegal was happening at all, right? Like, these guys were just, like, using the internet to, to organize around what stocks they want to buy. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to an interview with an MSNBC guy and a guy whose first name is Chamath. I don't know. I can't remember his last name, but he was the former CEO of Facebook. And he brought up, like, to me what was a really salient point, which was just, like, like regularly these hedge fund managers have like these things called idea dinners where you know representatives from like the biggest hedge funds will just go to a restaurant and talk about what socks they like behind closed doors and like what is the difference between what they do and what these redditors are doing except these redditors have the courage to do it on the internet on an open forum and well, that's what i don't get is like if you can just do that and that's literally the determinant of how much you might you know the the determinant of how much money you make on the stock market is just a function of how many other people want to buy it so that makes the price go up if there's more demand yeah why doesn't everyone do that for everything right why doesn't seems like the obvious thing to do with every single like you just get together with a bunch of other people and just say buy this thing and then by definition it will go up and then people will see that it's going up and then more people will buy yeah i think that it's like i think people are literally just learning about the collective power that they have right i mean mm-hmm. this wasn't an option for people before the internet like when the stock one. market was conceived yeah when the stock market was conceived this wasn't an option for people right there was no way to organize in mass and i think i i pretty sure this is like what actually happened i could be giving or spreading fake news but i'm pretty sure that it was two like it was mainly two people from wall street bets that like had a lot of cash in the portfolio that bought a shit ton of game stock and then people like rally behind them, you know? So like, it still took like people with considerable amount, like two people with considerable amounts of wealth to kind of kick the ball in the direction before people, you know, bought into it. Mm-hmm. But I think that, I think that this is going to represent a shift in the way the market works because people now know that it's possible, right? Like people know now that there are just like literal Reddit like subreddits where if you know these people decide to organize and drive up the price of a stock that's exactly what they're going to do and like mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to see what the market is or if the market's going to do anything in response to it right because the idea is like we saw them act pretty quickly when quote unquote the wrong people started losing money mm-hmm. and um you know so some people are, are like really thinking that we're going to see some kind of policy around this, but like, what could yeah, the, I wonder, what, what could the policy be? You know, yeah, like, <laughs> I wonder if that's going to fundamentally change just how we conceive of the stock market. Period. Yeah, I saw a really funny tweet, and it was like, <laughs> the government's really going to start charging people for outsider trading, <laughs> 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 just like very yeah, fairly, like very fairly and legally trading. Yeah. But honestly, at the end of the day, like that's a super risky type of investment. Yeah. And like, even if you know that it is like a possibility that you could just like get 500 of your closest friends to go like buy this stock, you know, not, at the end of the day, you can't get everybody to do that. You know, you have to make sure that everybody is actually 
committed to doing it. Yeah. Um, it's not a good way to And it make depends money. on your like investment <laughs> style too. Yeah. Like I didn't buy any stocks. Like I'm not like an individual stock picker. So you're already removing like, and some people don't, don't even want to like participate in that kind of like um, investing strategy. You know, other people want to just do like index funds or like buy and hold. Um, so like there's potential to like win for some people, but it still isn't like a strategy for most Americans or most people. Yeah. I think that, you know, a ton of people made money at first and then like people, you know, it became a meme and people started buying and like definitely lost money. Um, so definitely like not what you should be planning on in terms of your investment strategy. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, I mean, the situation made a lot of people our age and probably even like Zoomers talk about like getting into the stock market and what that meant, you know? And I think that's really cool. Like I like, I had a, I had a fidelity portfolio or like I had a fidelity account that like I was just sitting around and I was like, you know what? Like, let me go and buy some stocks. Like, let me just like get into some like ETFs just to see what like, you know, just mm -hmm. some long-term investments. And like, just because I can, but even though I am someone that like now makes a decent amount of money, it still felt intangible to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even the vocabulary around it, like I didn't even know what a brokerage was mm -hmm. or like <laughs> how that worked. So it's just like even navigating like the ABCs and complicated like terms. Yeah. Do you and feel it's not comfortable made to be user to... friendly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's money. It's like, it's something that's stressful and risky. So unless you like, are you feel knowledgeable enough, like you're not going to like jump in and do mm -hmm. it. So what are you, what are you invested in? Yeah, I, um, I just do index funds. So I have my, I have a robo advisor right now, um, Betterment, where I opened my four, my Roth IRA like a few years ago. Um, and that's when I like had zero, no, like no idea, like what I was doing, but I was like, I want to start, you know, because I know that like time is, is money, basically. So then I just like open this account. And like now I'm moving my account to Fidelity. Um, and then I'm going to do like a classic three fund portfolio, um, you know, like diversify it. Um, mm -hmm. And then like with my 401k, it's just like a target date fund. I'm basically like simple strategy yeah. <laughs> um, type of girl. And also like finding some time to like do like individual stock picking on the side but like just not with too much of my money um that's just my approach yeah you should only stick money for like individual stock trading that you're like very okay with losing <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it's not long term well exactly that's why having robo advisors i think are so like the way to go because the stock market is so counter your emotions no one wants mm -hmm. to buy low it's so like something that I think is the perfect thing that's suited for a machine to do instead of a human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And like, yeah, like you, some level of trust in them so that you don't feel like you have to check it every day. Cause that's, that's like the worst thing you could do with your investments is like, look at them all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't even think about it. Um, so I, every couple of months I'll go check my, like my 401k account and be like, Oh, look, there's cash in here. Like I, I'm, I might be able to retire at some point and then I just like leave again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, that's like one of the most fundamental parts of why the capitalist system is so like built to increase inequality is because the things that are riskiest and can make you the most money, like investing in a hedge fund are only things you can do if you have just like millions of dollars lying around. Like the average mm -hmm. person cannot, you know, benefit from those things. Yeah. I saw, or when I was doing training for the fellowship, um 
there was like some financial so someone was giving a presentation on wealth inequality and something that was really moving to me there was like this graph of like the average median like net worth of the top one percent and then like the bottom 90 percent and those lines were actually pretty close until like the stock market became a thing and then it was like oh literally it's just now that if the more money you have you like you have the ability to like exponentially multiply your wealth just because of just because you have money um and that makes me feel like man i kind of like i kind of really hate this institution you know like i i don't (laughs) think this is good (laughs) danielle thanks so much for sitting down with us today um thank you so I have two closing questions. The first is, um, what have you been doing to stay sane slash busy during this pandemic? Good question. Um, well, I got a quarantine cat. <laughs> <laughs> so she's been keeping me entertained. Um, this is my first time being a cat mom, so I'm learning a lot and also just getting a lot of cuddles. So nice. she's helping a lot. Good. The second question is, now that we're almost a year into the quarantine um think back to like you know march like what was the last thing you did in like a big crowd of people (laughs) oh my god yes i had i had my friend from college visit and we had like a, a, a huge reunion here with some of our friends from college and we went to um godmother (laughs) in dc (laughs) which is like the most like was probably the worst place you can go during a a pandemic it's just like a grimy basement um with i mean that's all the clubs here in dc but like it was just disgusting um and then that weekend that's when everything closed down or like the weekend afterwards when everything closed down so we're like "Hmm, we probably have covid (laughs) because we were doing some raunchy (laughs) shit in there (laughs) yeah but yeah, that's sort of the last time I've, I've been out. Nice. Okay, Danielle, uh, plug your plug your content. Where can they find you? Yes, you can find me at The Unbrokeable on Instagram. Um, a website is coming soon. Um, but my DMs are open if you have any questions or just want to connect. Yeah, find me on there, The Unbrokeable. Cool. And as always, uh, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Twitter, that's our Gmail, and that's our Instagram. Otherwise, bye. <laughs>